that was that was the scariest time you know as an adult that I can remember in terms of not being sure that I was going to get through it not feeling like just not understanding how this could possibly ever end Welcome to the Depression Files where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression We talk about everything related to mental health from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. Tonight I'm excited we have on the line with us Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy is a marriage and family therapist, an author, a public speaker, and a childhood trauma survivor. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you, <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Al. Yeah, you got me tongue-tied already. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, really excited to have you on the show. I want to um, just publicly thank you again. I know scheduling got a little hairy, and uh, really appreciate your flexibility. Of course. So, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about right off the bat is I have met a lot of therapists and a lot of social workers that once I get to know them, elude to their own kind of trauma or their own kind of mental illness issues that they've dealt with in the past, yet they never mention it really to anybody in the realm of work or to clients. And I was excited to see that you are a therapist and that you do share your story and talk about it. Wondering, uh, was it difficult to be able to talk about it as a professional therapist? That's a really interesting question. I, I do think it adds a, a layer of complexity because I think one of the powerful components of therapy is the kind of reflectivity that a good therapist can have where, you know, a client looks at the therapist and doesn't necessarily see that person and their history and their experiences but sees kind of what they need to see and who they need to interrelate with and then be able to work on that in the therapeutic process. And I, I definitely don't want to disrupt that experience. Right. On the flip side, I've definitely found that, you know, some awareness of what I've been through. And I, I mean, certainly in, in sessions with other, with clients, I will never, go into details, but of course there's things outside of this session that they can find out about. Um, but, but I think there's a, a connectedness that's sometimes created that helps people understand, Oh, wait a second. He actually has been through this and look where he is. Absolutely. Maybe I can do it too. You know, Absolutely. and I think that's, that's really what I'm most looking for is to, to be able to help people to understand that, yeah, those of us that have been through trauma, it's, it is terrible. It does completely affect our lives, but it doesn't have to remain always bad. 
Right. Yeah, and so it's interesting because my take on it, I don't know from the professional perspective because I'm not in the field as a professional, but for me as a patient, I really believe that knowing that a therapist I'm seeing has been through it themselves, they can really understand what I've been through. And while I I strongly believe in therapists and talk therapy, I do still say, and some therapists may get offended by this, that it, a good therapist, even if they have never experienced it, I don't believe that they can actually understand the feelings people are having. They can do great work and they can still be very helpful and supportive, as supportive as any other therapist probably. But it's just a little bit different for me as a client knowing that they've been through it. They've been there and they know what it feels like. It's funny you say that. I, uh, in my marriage and family therapy program, one of the biggest projects we had that I absolutely loved and just dove into was we had to create a genogram. And essentially a genogram is a family tree of relationships. So it's less about when someone was born and when someone died, but it's more about what kind of relationship did they have? Was their marriage good? How were they as parents? What was their experience with their siblings? So you get a kind of a collection of what we call traditions, right? There's a tradition of this kind of behavior. There's a tradition of depression. There's a tradition of, you know, verbal abuse or whatever it is. So obviously there can be good traditions too. Right. And right. that just wasn't my experience. And so, you know, I one of the most interesting things was then we had to do all this research and we had to present it to our class. Wow. Cool. And so we all stood in front of our class. Another 20, you know, 20 somethings, right? Was, this was grad school and just shared with them what we learned about our family. Wow. And I can remember watching some of the other students and they would just sort of talk about that everything in their family was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. And I think what you were saying about those that have an understanding of depression or trauma or whatever it is, probably will be better for you. I do think, and again, I'm slightly biased because I am a therapist and I believe in therapy, but I think even a good therapist who's taken the time to really examine their own life and their own experiences is probably going to be at least better for you than one that hasn't. So you, you, at least you want someone who's who you can kind of tell has done some of that work on themselves right? and isn't just, you know, those who can't do teach, mm -hmm. right? You want someone who's both done and can teach, so yep. to speak. Absolutely. Once, uh, some of the listeners may have heard me share this in the past, but once I recovered from my second major depression, my therapist was leaving the practice or, or changing roles really. And I had to find a new therapist and I did, and, and I was well past my second major depression and feeling in a really good place, but I really wanted a therapist kind of on hold that I could meet, make sure we click, make sure he knew my background so that if I needed somebody, I'd have a go-to person without having to search it out once I'm in a bad spot. And when I met him, my 
kind of philosophy at the time was I'm going to interview this guy my first appointment as much as he's going to interview me because I need to make sure we're a really good fit. And I did ask him and I said, you know, this is going to be kind of a personal question. And and if you don't want to answer, I'm totally cool with that. Um, But after I shared with him my story and a lot of my background, I asked him if he had ever experienced depression. And and he said, yes, he had. And, and he even went into a lot of the details. He said, I haven't experienced it to the level you have, but this was what mine was around. And right away, like, I probably got a little more than I was, uh, you know, looking for. Bargain but, for it, yeah. But, but it was great. And it did. It made an instant connection to this guy for me personally. And I felt an instant trust, an instant bond kind of like he's been there he knows what this is about and uh and you know i think every client it's different every patient it's it's going to be different but for me that was really important and i it was a really nice connection and i wouldn't have minded at all if really if he would have said you know i'd rather not share my personal side this is about you yeah and i i I just want to touch on this a little bit i don't want to take us too far off the topic but i think your point about your your attitude going into that first session that you want to understand where this person is coming from. You want to understand sort of what the experience would be like. I, I, I worry a lot that so many people just don't understand the therapy process and sort of think, well, whatever the therapist wants, that's what I have to do. Right. And instead that you know, you, you can choose therapists like you choose doctors, you know, like you don't, you go to the doctor and you don't like their bedside manner or whatever, you go find somebody else. You know, if you don't feel that connection with the therapist or you don't feel comfortable with their perspective or what they're thinking, don't give up on therapy, just find somebody else. And then I know that process is frustrating and difficult and Lord knows our health system does not in any way make that easy but it's worth it when you find one that you can really work with and that can make such a big difference than sticking with someone that you're just eh about and you don't feel that good because you're not going to work as hard you're not going to make the same level of commitment and you're not going to feel any sort of positivity when you have successes yep i agree a hundred percent and i share that often with people who I know are going to be trying therapy or I recommend therapy. And I usually say, and I'm curious about your thought on this, I usually say give the therapist a try maybe two or three times to give them that opportunity. Maybe the first time, you know, you're already in an awkward place and a difficult place. Try them two or three times, and if it doesn't work, go looking elsewhere. And it is frustrating and difficult and sharing your story again and going through the search process and especially if you're in a deep, dark depression to be going through it again, right. really yeah. is a bummer, but it is so worth it um, because you do have to really trust the therapist and you do have to really bond. And I remember I was glad that I gave one of my therapists a second shot because one of them um, right away was asking me things that I felt were kind of more personal than I wanted to share, but I also was in a deep depression and just answered whatever he asked. I mean, he was asking what school I was at and, you know, things like that where I worked. And part of me was like, oh, my God, I don't want to be sharing this because I had a little bit of paranoia and shame and didn't want people to know I was in therapy. Right. Um, But he ended up being a great therapist, and I was glad I gave him a shot. Another therapist I had that I did not like, I gave him a shot. 
two or three times, and every time I started the session, he would sit at his computer, and for like 10 minutes of my 30-minute oh. uh, visit, he'd sit at the computer, and he'd read me the previous notes from the session before, and I was like, ugh, this just oh. feels like a waste of time. Yeah, um, yeah. So I decided to leave him, but I do agree with you and think it is so worth um, shopping around, and don't give up on therapy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've tried to say that to people in so many ways over the last 20, 25 years, you know, it's, it's, I know I've had, uh, you know, quite a few therapists and the first one that really made a difference. I mean, it, I, you know, he changed my life, right? You know, my, my life is, was on it, went on a different trajectory because of the work he and I did. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and in fact, he was so good, it made me a better therapist. Right. Because he was he was the most empathetic person I've ever met. And so you would just tell him something and like his whole face was just so emotive and reacting to your story, to whatever I was saying. And it just just by that alone felt like what I said mattered and was important and it had meaning to somebody else. And I mean, just that alone was amazing. And it really helped me actually think about, well, how do I help help other people feel that way? You know, how can I be better in the, in therapy as a therapist so that my clients feel that not just connection, but that, that understanding, that sense of meaning that he was able to give me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I have heard the same thing often. I've got some training as a coach, like a life coach, a personal coach, and mm -hmm. they say the same thing. The great coaches have a coach of their own, right? And you're learning from them and you're growing even just in the coaching strategies and so forth, as well as just growing as a person. Yeah. I mean, I none, none of us ever, like... The, the good ones, they never stop growing, right? Exactly. They never get to a point and say, ah, I'm going to kick my feet up. I've pretty much done everything I can do to get good at this. Right. Like, I'm as no. good as it gets. <laughs> right. And plus we keep changing so that even some of the skills we used to have become a little bit different because our experiences are shifting. And right. We just, you know, it's it's a little bit harder way of living life where you're constantly having to keep growing and keep learning but it's also like the best way to live life is by learning and growing absolutely so i forgot what city you're from well i was born in philadelphia okay and i live uh, on long island now okay. with my family so one of the things regarding therapists that i've also heard i live in minnesota and I think people are still a bit uh, shameful of even mentioning that they're going to a therapist or they see a therapist. And a couple of people I've met have said, and maybe you, I don't know if you're in the field, if you're able to respond to this or not, but I've heard that many people say out, out on the East Coast, it is just like going to the gym. Like you let anybody know like, oh, I got a therapy appointment. I'll meet you after that. And it's just the norm. And it's expected that most people see a therapist. I don't know if it's quite that norm, but okay. it is more norm. I think, right. you know, it's, it's, it's more, uh, it's less sort of 
frowned upon or less like, oh, what's wrong with you? Right. Less and more like, oh, okay, I've been thinking about doing that myself too. You know, do you like your, per-? you know, it's more of a conversation opener. Whereas I think in a lot of places in the country and certainly, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that was like, there's something wrong with you. Exactly. You know, you're, you're mentally ill, you're going to therapy. Whereas, you know, in reality, we're, you know, <laughs> we're the least mentally ill if we're going to therapy right we're getting the help that we need exactly it's when you're not going that sometimes you end up with problems right right so i want to ask you i know you have been through childhood trauma when uh, when did the trauma experiences start um almost from birth um uh probably started somewhere around when I was two or three, but my mother was a bit of a mess. So I suspect it started earlier. And this was trauma that was of the nature of physical trauma, sexual trauma, uh, verbal. So unfortunately, um, so unfortunately there's probably there's, Four people um, who traumatized me directly, um, and then a couple of others who, by failing to protect me, were also traumatizing. So my mother, my grandfather, uh, a babysitter, and a camp counselor. Wow. All, um you know, molested, sexually abused, or raped me in some way. Right. Um, with my mother, it was, she was also verbally abusive and emotionally abusive. And, um, you know, she, she, you know, I, I have somewhat tried to diagnose her, of course, as an adult. Um, she really seemed to struggle with, uh, narcissistic and borderline personality disorders. And so there was these extremes of everything is good. Everything is terrible. Everything you do is wrong. You know? So there was that. And, um, it was, uh, you know, really went on, um, at least most of it until I was 18 and she cut me out of her life. Wow. Uh, Um, and that, you know, is uh, you know, it's it's so hard in life because when things happen to you, you don't, you know, obviously when they happen, you don't understand the ramifications. Right. So the the night my mother cut me out of her life, it was the day after her birthday, and she called me up and she said, since I don't come to her house and I don't accept her husband. I'm, and I want this relationship on my terms instead of her terms. She's not going to speak to me until I change. And then she hung up the phone and it was so devastating. Cause at that point I didn't, I wasn't aware of all she had done to me. Right. At that point she was my mother and she wasn't maybe treating me that well, but she was still my mother. Um, and I kind of fell on the ground and my heart started to hurt 
And the next day I was really lightheaded and dizzy and uh, I, I had to walk um, on the hallway. I worked at a hospital. I had to walk along the hallway holding my hand against the wall because I was so dizzy and lightheaded that I couldn't kind of stand up on my own. And, you know, as the day went on, my heart hurt more and more. And I just had this terrible tightness in my chest. And I my, I had, knew a lot of people in the hospital, so they took me down to the emergency room. They did an EKG. And, the, and this woman stood over, and I'll never forget this, she stood over my face upside down like you know so I was lying down she leaned over my head and told me that the muscles around my heart were swelling and were crushing my heart wow and you know my mother had just cut me out of her life she basically had just destroyed me and my body was playing that out in real life and then once I knew that I think I smiled like I, you know, I had been in therapy a lot already and I understood, oh, you know, my mother breaks my heart. My heart is getting crushed. That makes perfect sense. And then I was able to calm down and within a couple of hours I was feeling fine. Wow. And so at that point, but, and I guess the point that I was getting to is like, to me, that was the felt like the most devastating thing I'd ever experienced again, because I hadn't remembered a lot of what I'd been through. But that felt like the end, you know, my my mother wasn't ever going to talk to me again, how am I going to survive that? And in reality, that was maybe one of the best days of my life. Was that the last time you spoke to her? Um, I saw her um, sorry, I'm just trying to remember. I ha- we have not had any communication for tw- over 20 years whatsoever. Um, but for a few years, I felt it was my responsibility to get our relationship back. And so I made efforts. I sent emails. I sent letters. I sent um, – I showed up at her house. I called her. But um, – even, you know, there were a couple of times where we would communicate for maybe a month or two and then she'd cut me out of her life again. And it was just at some point I kind of realized I had to stop because it was just too painful to keep going back to that and getting hurt by her. Right. Um, and then but, was it know, through, I'm sorry, was it through therapy that that you eventually did remember these pieces of the trauma that she had put you through? Um, I mean, absolutely. But most of the things that I remember, I like most of the flashbacks I've had, I've had outside of therapy. Um, I, I'll give you one example. So, uh, I don't, you know, when I was growing up, uh, NPR had this guy named Bob Edwards as the anchor in the morning show in their morning edition. And every Friday he would talk to Red Barber and NPR would do its little sports, 10 minutes of sports for the week. And, and he wrote a book about it. Bob Edwards wrote a book, Fridays with Red. And it was a really lovely book. And I always liked Bob Edwards. Uh, I was kind of a nerd growing up. And 
he talks about losing he talks about when red dies and it kind of felt like he was losing a father and i started to get so upset and i started to think about other father experiences where i felt that same loss and so i started thinking about field of dreams and i don't know if you've seen that movie but uh it's you know the ending of that movie is just so father-son moment and so kind of painful um i've never watched that movie without crying completely crying and then that's just started piecing stuff together and then kind of my brain just exploded and i had this um i had this memory of my grandfather uh hurting me and i mean that was it was to me that was devastating i had he was I thought he was my favorite relative. I, you know, I idolized him. He was a rabbi. I mean, he was, he was amazing. And yet he was horrific and an absolutely horrible man. So these uh, memories would just come to you kind of, you said like flashbacks, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and there while you're, uh, just doing typical activities and all of a sudden you'd have a flashback and did, you must've been questioning. I would imagine, like you said, he was My such sanity. a great, well, well, he was such a great <laughs> man. Right. So yeah. Like, yeah. wow. What is like, is this a dream? Am I being, am I making this all up? Could this have really happened? I still wonder that, but I think that's more of, you know, it's sort of like my mother's voice who never kind of believed anything I said. Right. Um, not not my you know when i when i look at it as my experience when i look at it on the information that i have you know i had found out already at that point before i remembered about him i had heard from one of my uncles that he had molested his children oh my goodness so it it wasn't like this had never happened, and I was the first one. This had happened to his kids, and I've got to believe, and I don't know for sure, but i got to believe that it happened to some of the other grandchildren as well because there were others that were older than me. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I've, I've just, you know, I, I started going to therapy when I was nine years old, so I kind of grew up you know being my own therapist in a way because it it you know how you sort of have your mom's voice and your dad's voice in your head well I also had a therapist voice in my head right because it's kind of the way I was brought up so I I've always been you know when I have that when I read that book my brain immediately says well this is sim this is a pattern right it's similar to the way that you feel about this movie, which is similar to the way you feel about that, which is, and then once it starts making those connections, um, and then I've had um, subsequent memories of him mm -hmm. and kind of understanding how it happened. And, you know, so I, like, yes, that's the, it's the weirdest part about kind of remembering something that you had repressed. Right. But I find that when you, or I'll just say it like this, when I was able to kind of put those memories in context with 
other things that I knew about my family or about these people or about how I felt, it, it's fit. And I think that's what helped me to sort of, it just made sense. Right. Did you ever reach out back to him and, and question him about these pieces? And I'm also curious if you ever spoke to the older cousins that you are imagining probably went through similar experiences. Um, so my grandfather died when I was um, graduating sixth grade, probably 11, maybe. Okay. And so I never, right, I never got a chance to talk to him. Right. Right. When I was doing my genogram that I had mentioned earlier, I did uh, send a letter to all of my cousins, sort of asking them, hey, what was your experience with your parents? What was your experience with, you know, grandma and grandpa? And I have, besides my sister, there are eight other uh, grandkids. And only one of them got back to me. That's and interesting. told me something, right, that's what I thought, frankly, at the time. And she told me something about her dad and what she sort of always felt that he had may have been hurt by his parents. He never talked to me about that, but his older brother talked to me about it. So, you know, it was just, and, and, and I'll tell you, to be honest, actually, when my when his wife died, when my grandmother died, so she died when I was in my 30s, early 30s. When she died, I was so upset. And I wasn't upset because I, because we had stopped talking as well. She had just hurt me so much verbally. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And when she died, I, my cousin had let me know, but I had made the conscious decision I didn't want to go visit. Plus it meant, the possibility of running into my mother and I didn't want to deal with that either. But I was so upset when she died because I realized that neither of them would be held accountable for what they did. Right. And I think there's this thing about accountability and justice that those of us who have suffered from trauma feel this profound need for in a way that I'm frankly still working through. Right. Cause how do you get justice when justice, there's no one to serve justice, right. you know? When um, they're gone. And when they're gone, or even in some cases when they're here. I mean, you know, the, the things I learned about this camp counselor, to be honest, I was already past the statute of limitations. And so, you know, he got away scot-free on that. Did you try to bring charges against him? I, by the time that I remembered, it was too late. Right. Uh, the law in Pennsylvania is something like five years. Oh my goodness, and I, that just seems yeah, ridiculous. Right, exactly. Um, so that would have made me, you know, five years would have put me at 17 years old or something. Right. And I, 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 I didn't remember anything yet. Yeah. You know, that I was ridiculous. I, I was just trying to graduate high school. <laughs> right. So you mentioned, uh, you know, this father son moment in the movie you talked about, and I don't think you've mentioned to us yet. What, uh, about your father? 
um, I mean, my dad was one of the ones that I just feel didn't protect me. Right. You know, he, he had a really hard time sort of seeing his value as a dad. He suffered from depression. Um, you know, my mother can do that to people. <laughs> right. So, you know, he, when I, I was growing up, he was depressed and he mostly just worked, you know, okay. he didn't, he didn't really have a social life. He would easily work 80, 90, a hundred hours a week. Wow. Um, yeah, he was a lawyer. So, you know, he was out of the house by six, six thirty, and he was home at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. And sometimes he would work on the weekends. Um, frequently he would work on the weekends. So I, I rarely saw him on a regular basis, even though we lived in the same house until I was in high school and I could stay up later or maybe middle school and I could stay up a little bit later. And then you'd see um, him in the evenings. Right. And I'd see him for a little bit in the evenings, not long, maybe half an hour or something. Did you bond at all throughout those evenings? No, no. Uh, I mean, the only thing he and I have really been able to talk about for the most part is sports. That's kind of the way that we could connect with each other. Right. Uh, and that was about it. I mean, it was very, it's very stereotypical. Uh, but, you know, those stereotypes come from somewhere usually. Right. And so this, uh, the trauma was ongoing, it sounds like, until you were 18 or so? Yeah. I mean, so... You know, the camp counselor was maybe once or a couple times. The babysitter was a few times. My grandfather was several times. And my mother was pretty consistent, um, maybe a couple times a week, up until I was 13, when I kind of, in my own, I, I sort of broke it off with her. You right. Um, and the camp counselor and the babysitter, did you share that information with anybody or were those pieces, again, you didn't even realize until later in life? I mean, how you got to understand, I went to a I went to a sports camp and this counselor raped me. And I came home to a place where my mother was doing the same thing, basically. Right, right. I didn't have anybody. Oh, my god. And I didn't, I didn't have a language. Right. I mean, I couldn't tell my parents. There was no way I could tell my parents. But I, I sometimes wonder why I didn't tell my therapist. Mm -hmm. But I, I, don't, I didn't have a language. I mean, how... I was 12 or 13 when that happened. But right. it had already been happening to me for almost a decade at right. home. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. wow, it, it's unbelievable. you know, I sometimes think about that, but it's, I, I it's, yeah, there's just, I, the only way I've been able to sort of explain it is that I, there was no language for right. me to explain what was happening. It's different when it's an aberration in the sense of you have a relatively quote unquote normal experience as a child and then something bad happens. Right. And but it's crystal clear me, and crystal clear. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But for me that it was 
bad all along. And I, you know, I later on, of course, came to realize essentially what I was doing was I was having these experiences and then I was disconnecting from them right away right. and essentially just storing them in this, what I call this tunnel of toxicity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there were, there's lots of things that I don't remember. There's huge swaths of my life that I don't remember because I was just constantly, I mean, it's kind of amazing how our brains do this. Yeah. And my brain somehow understood you just have to, you have to get rid of this. You have to delete it because you won't survive if you're aware of this every day. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It was and just, so, the, it was the norm. It sounds like. Correct. Yeah. Correct. What about, um, were you going to school and attending school regularly and what was school like? Were you doing okay with grades and did any, any teachers or anything recognize like something seems different? Um, no teachers seem to recognize, which I always find sad, you know, I was clearly depressed. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I missed a lot of school. I, you know, as you can imagine, I was a really fearful child because um, I was basically constantly in a state of terror. Oh, yeah. So I was just scared all the time. And that meant that I was scared to go places, right. you know. And so going to school was very scary. Probably didn't um, trust anybody at school. Right. And, you know, talking to teachers was very scary. I mean, all, all of it, all of the sort of normal things that kids have, except exacerbated by the fact that home was exactly the same, this kind of torturous, traumatic place that I had no, there was no place that was safe for me. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. One of the only times that I felt good in growing up was playing sports you know sports gave me a sense of of who i was or who i could be Uh, i was really good at sports and so you know i would i was on teams in high school and and i went to the sports camp and it it was just like a great it was a great way to be me you know and that was the only time that i could do that so I, i struggled a lot in school and I always thought of myself as stupid. And it wasn't until, you know, in the last 10 years or so where I realized the, the magnitude of what I had gone through as a kid. Like, of course I wasn't doing well at school. Exactly. I, I, every fiber of my being, every neuron in my brain was just trying to get me to survive the day. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't focus. I wasn't storing information. Oh yeah. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Like I haven't experienced the trauma, but even my two bouts of major depression, like I think my cognition was impacted. Certainly my focus, my memory. I, I mean, everything. And I would imagine the traumatic childhood you grew up in, you are always in that state of mind. And to be able to try to focus on school is, it's silly to even expect that you'd you'd have a chance at doing well right. in school. And just one more thing I want to say about that. The realization 
of that sense of context. Like, it's not that I was stupid. It's that there was a whole lot of other stuff going on in my life was very freeing, you know, to be able to let myself off the hook for that. Right. Like, yeah, you didn't do later well in, in high life. school. Yeah, later in right. life, you're saying. Right. I could, yeah. I could, yeah, only in the last 10 years or so. But yeah, and at the time. But even so, it's better at right. least to be able to say, oh, yeah, no, it's not that I w- was stupid. It's that I was traumatized and nobody thinks well when they're traumatized. Exactly. But at the time when your grades are are suffering uh, and so forth, yeah, it I, probably only exponentially impacted your depression. Yeah. And, and made you beat yourself up more. Yeah. What, uh, so you did mention, de- you know, how you were going to classes, you were clearly depressed, you said. What were some of the ways that the depression manifested throughout, like, middle and high school? I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't really know. Right. Um, it was the way that I was. Yeah. You know, I just... I just wasn't a happy person. I was very fearful. I was very anxious. Right. I would have panic attacks. You know, there'd be times where I would have these back spasms that were almost debilitating. I would have stomach aches all the time. I was just, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to take a slight digression, but so I've started seeing a chiropractor because I, ha- I have a lot of pain all over my body and I've always had it my entire life and I've been seeing specialists and I've worked out and I've stretched and I I can't I haven't been able to figure out anything that helps with the actual essentially kind of like muscular soft tissue pain that I have from head to toe completely and he did an assessment and he would press on maybe 30 or 40 points all over my body and probably 95% of the points that he touched were incredibly painful. And I've come to realize actually today, to be honest, was, you know, so emotionally I've had one of the things I've done as an adult was to what I called the integration phase. And I spent about a year essentially traveling through that tunnel of toxicity and re-experiencing as much of it as I could. And so I have this theory called a a pool of pain. We all have, particularly those of us that have been through trauma, we all have this pool of pain. And the problem is, is when the pool is filled to the top, it only takes something very little to have it splash over, right? And that's where we start to feel that sense of being just overwhelmed by our emotions and and feeling out of control. But if we can figure out a way to empty out that pool, process our feelings so they don't build up, we have a little bit larger margin of error. So because I'm starting from a point where I've basically been hurt since I was two years old, there is a lot of backed up emotions that I needed to process that I just had disconnected from when I was younger because that's the way my brain worked. The problem, of course, with disconnecting from your emotions is that, yeah, you don't feel the bad stuff, but you don't feel the good stuff. And, you know, I'm married. I have twins. 
I love my family and my family loves me and I couldn't feel that. Mm-hmm. And it was just terrible to, to be in my thirties and see that I created this life that I didn't even dream that I could have. And yet, even after all the work I've done, I couldn't feel it. And so I started going through the process of honestly what I, the way that it worked for me. And I don't think this is the right way. I think it's a way, right? The way that it worked for me was I cried every day. I took 20 or 30 minutes almost every day for six to eight months and I just cried because I found that when I could set aside time to cry a I didn't find myself needing to cry in a meeting with someone which never worked out very well for me right and right or you're talking to your kids and you start to cry like that's not I didn't want to do that so by setting aside time my body started to get used to oh I'm going to have this time I'll save it for that and I would cry for 20, 30 minutes. And I don't mean just like tears. I mean that, that body racking, like real full body crying. How would you get yourself to start crying? I started, uh, I'm a huge music guy. Okay. And so I think of music as my emotional management tool. And so I created a playlist of songs that that get me upset. And I just kept looking for songs that would make me cry songs that either just for something about the music but more likely something about the lyrics that resonated with me and i would create you know i had a crying playlist and i'd go and i'd put it on and i would cry for 20 30 minutes i would be drenched i mean completely my shirt my undershirt would just be drenched in sweat and i always felt better afterwards and and I did that for six to eight months. And that backup of emotions really dissipated, uh, really decreased. And what I just do is I, I try to do it regularly. You know, I don't have to do it every day anymore. But when I start to feel a buildup, if the other things that I do to process my emotions on a daily basis aren't enough, then I'll set aside some time to cry, listen to music, get my washcloth, cry, and then kind of have a little bit larger space in my pool to be able to kind of go through my day. Wow, that's really cool. Thanks. <laughs> I, I've, I, I've literally just devoted my life to figuring out how to overcome all of this. And so... I have all sorts of theories and things that I've tried. But so what I've realized with this chiropractor is that the trauma I experienced as a kid, it's also physical, right? I've spent my whole life dealing with the emotional, but I spent much of my adult, like much of my entire life, because it wasn't really until the last few years that I even started to understand that I'm not in danger anymore. Right. I mean, that's the, the, the biggest problem with trauma is that you don't know when it ends. Right. It just feels like you're in between the last time it happened and the next time it's going to happen. And so 
that kind of state of terror all the time, it, I, it, it's all held in my body. Mm-hmm. And when this guy keeps pressing on these pain points and working them out, I think he's like sort of physically releasing some of my pain the same way that I was doing it through crying right? emotionally. He's doing the physical piece. You were taking care Correct. of the emotional piece. Right. That's really interesting. Have you tried any kinds of um, non-traditional medicines, any kind of, I don't know, like maybe acupuncture or some of the um, Asian movement arts like Qigong? I haven't tried the Asian movement arts. I did try acupuncture and it, it, I thought it was, I didn't, I didn't mind it. I didn't have any problem with it, but it, it didn't feel like it was addressing my pain the way that this chiropractor is, Right. you know, there's his, he just, I, I, I don't know, but he is the first medical professional that I've been to that understands that I'm not in pain because I did something to hurt myself. I'm in pain because I've held this pain for 40 years. Right, right. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds like it's working wonders for you. I'm I'm excited. (laughs) I'm curious also if you ever tried EMDR therapy because I've also heard that that is supposed to be just phenomenal for people who have experienced trauma in their lives. I did try it. I didn't find a lot of success with it. I also tried it much later on. In fact, I tried it last year for the first time. Okay. Um, So I have already done an enormous amount of work. And not that I don't have more work to do. Like, honestly, it's never going to end. But um, I don't know. I, I think it is very good. It just wasn't that helpful for me. And I... I don't have enough experience with it to to understand whether it was the therapist or whether it was just my situation or something else. But I I do uh, I do see myself trying it again probably I think because I I think there's probably a value to it. If you were to say, do you think that EMDR doesn't work, or do you think maybe this therapist wasn't quite good enough? I'd probably say that he wasn't quite good enough. Right. Yeah, I've heard phenomenal things about EMDR from actually from professionals who have had their own trauma and had um, and worked with a therapist on through EMDR and they've had some fantastic experiences. You're you know, the conversation we've been having around your physical the physical impacts of the trauma as well reminds me of the book The Body Keeps the Score. It's a fantastic book, and a lot of it does talk about the childhood trauma and the impacts that it has later in life. So it's a really, really interesting read, and I would highly recommend it, particularly for your own experiences and just as a therapist. Right. Uh, I yeah. saw a therapist who, who tweeted it out, which was the first time I had heard about it, and she mentioned like anybody who works with human beings at all should read this book. And, and she was right on. I thought it was a phenomenal book. So share with us. So once you were 18, did you end up leaving the house at 18 or what happened from that point on? So I was applying to colleges 
and um, my parents announced they were getting divorced on January 1st. And, and I was 17 at the time. It turned out my mother had had a few affairs and she had another one and she was ready to move on. And um, she moved out of the house. And within, I guess that was January 1st, and that a year and a half later was when she cut me off. So, you know, it was just that stretch of her leaving and us having issues and me going off to college for the first time and then me taking a leave of absence because I was an emotional wreck because the divorce brought up all this stuff that I didn't understand. And that's kind of how it happened. So I didn't leave as much as she left. Um, and then when she cut me out of her life, she was, we were not living together anymore. So it was easier for her to do that. Right. Were you still at the house with your father? Yeah. I mean, I went off to college. I went away for college, but I would come home and still live at the house. Okay. And, and actually live there when I went to grad school. Like, so when I was in my family therapy program, I was living in that house. Okay. Did you say you took a leave of absence from school? I did from college. Uh huh. I went there for my first semester and then I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm a mess. And I went back into therapy because, you know, like any good boy, I learned that I was always the problem. And so I needed to get fixed. And then, and then I went back the following fall. Okay. So when you took your leave, did you end up going back home and you were with your dad then? Yep. Right. Yep. So it sounds like it was much of your, your learning and getting past some of the depression and your trauma was throughout college, being away from family and working through it with therapists? Yeah. So in college, I had the interesting experience where I would, and again, it's like, it's amazing how we sort of understand things at the time and then how we really understand them with uh, perspective. So when I was in college, it was the first time I thought that I was depressed. So I would have three months where everything was good and one month where I was terribly depressed, barely functional, have trouble going to school, like going to classes, would just lay in bed, cry all the time, so painfully anxious and panicky. For a full month and at a time. For four weeks. Wow. Four weeks. And I called it a three-month on, one month off. So it was three months good, one month bad. But of course, what was really happening, I didn't realize that till later, but it was the first time that I was feeling good, right? It was the first time I had three good months. And then I would have one bad month. But that one bad month was like my whole life. It just felt worse because I was doing okay and then I would collapse, you right, know? Right, right. And... You know, again, with perspective, I was able to realize essentially kind of like that pool of pain idea. I also have this backpack theory, right? And so we, we carry around a backpack and our interactions with people can sometimes give us weights, right? So you have an unpleasant experience with a boss 
or with a colleague. And it's like they've given you a weight that you now have to carry around for the rest of the day. And, you know, at some point we need to relieve the weight off of that backpack because that's what's literally weighing us down. That's what's stressing us out. That's what's causing us difficulty, anxiety, et cetera. The catch is, I think, if you have trauma, you're already starting each day with, say, 50 pounds. So every experience with someone else is just adding to this already existing weight that you're carrying. And for me, I could basically carry the weight for three months. And then one month, it took me of crying and of isolating myself in my room from everybody to kind of be able to empty out the backpack enough that I could carry it around for three months until I couldn't handle it anymore. And it, I mean, it, it, that's how I did it through college. And in college, like in my junior and senior year, I started to have like vague recollections or memories, uh, images of what my mother had done to me. And so I kind of knew it was happening. It had happened, but I, I wasn't quite ready to figure out what to do with that yet. Right. And then that's when I went to grad school, I still had the three months on one month off, which is a little bit harder in grad school. And then when I graduated, and so then obviously I'm learning about families all the time and I'm really just learning. I'm just thinking about my family, right? I'm, I obviously wanted to be a therapist, but in part, I went to family therapy school because I, I wanted to investigate my family, right? right? I wanted to understand what happened to me and what better place than to learn about that than family therapy program. Oh, absolutely. So I'm just learning stuff every day about my family and like, oh, they did this or, oh, that makes sense. You know, just really putting so many pieces together. And so I graduate grad school and... I ha I start working and I have the three months on one month off, but the one month off at work is significantly harder. And I had a, you know, I had a boss that wasn't very nice and she was, you know, she would say mean stuff to me or she'd get mad at me. And it was just, you know, female authoritarian figures are obviously understandably very difficult for me. And, I got into the four week depression, except that it didn't, uh, it didn't stop. So it went to five weeks and I went to six weeks and that had never happened before. And that was the beginning of my, what I call the two years of darkness. Wow. So straight a full two years of depression. Yeah. And yeah. you, you must've, did you quit work or get fired at that point? And I did. Yeah. I, I quit. Okay. What were those two years like? I mean, was that mostly literally bedridden or just how deep was the depression? So most of it, about a year, year and a half was just bad. You know, I wasn't working. I couldn't do anything. I was seeing a therapist. Um, I was seeing a psychiatrist a couple times a week, I think. Um, I was functional in the sense of I could take care of myself like feed you know eat but I didn't do anything 
Right. Um, there were six months where all I did was play Sega hockey. And I only reason I left the apartment was to see the psychiatrist. Right. Uh, and that was the worst. I mean, that was just, that was, that was the scariest time, you know, as an adult that I can remember in terms of not being sure that I was going to get through it, not feeling like, and just not understanding how this could possibly ever end. Did you and, ever, did you ever consider or did any of your medical doctors consider putting you into a, an intensive outpatient or a, a hospitalization inpatient program? I don't think so. I mean, the psychiatrist that I saw, I was on medication. I was on some antidepressant medication and some anti-anxiety medication and I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've ever thought about that, which is interesting because I feel like I think about almost everything. Um, yeah, no, I don't think that was considered. Man, that just seems. But like in a retrospect, long I wonder. Time. Yeah, in retrospect, I wonder if that would have been a better choice. Well, I know for me, when I took some time off before entering a partial hospitalization program, not having a schedule and not having anything to do, no structure was in hindsight the worst 10 days off I've ever taken. Um, mm. And then the next time I took time off, I did enter a partial hospitalization program. But yeah, two years of that. And, and I mean, how you weren't, you had no income either, right? I had no income. So Were my your, dad supported me. Okay. Okay. And did he know what was going on and talk to you at all about your depression? Yeah. I mean, we talked every week. I wasn't uh, I wasn't in Philly at the time I had moved to Brooklyn with my uh, at the time girlfriend who's my who's my wife like she's the woman I we stayed with each other and we would touch base every week and he was very supportive the best he could be um, but he you know he completely financially supported me and paid for three psychiatric sessions a week Wow, that's awesome. Um, I was really lucky in that sense. I don't know what I would have done if I had to somehow do it on my own, you know? Right. Because I, I, I mean, I, I really, I wasn't functional enough to do anything. And what do you and think? At uh, six months, I, I couldn't leave the house. Yeah. Oh, my God. It must have been awful. What, did, what do you think it was that finally broke you out of that depression? I think it was a lot of work. You know, I think the medication was able to provide me with a a baseline that didn't let me fall farther down. Right. And then allowed me to really start to delve into some of what I experienced. You know, and that's when I started learning about what my mother was like and the way she treated me and not just the abuse, but just the way she was normally, she was just, she was not a good person. You know, she was mentally ill and, and really sort of didn't understand me as a separate entity from her, but really saw me as um, how I served her what she needed. You right, know? right. And so I had basically built my entire life around her. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, submerged my own personality to be 
what she wanted me to be and trying to figure out what the right thing to do was. I mean, I still, you know, there'll be times now where I'm, you know, my wife will say, hey, do you mind picking up some yogurt? And I will stand in front of the yogurt counter afraid I'm going to make the wrong choice Uh, when my wife isn't going to care. You know, like I know she's not going to care and that's what gets me out of it. But I will still get stuck there. Right. Because I think there's a right way to do it. And the consequences of not choosing the right way were horrific. Right. Right. And when you say uh, it took you a lot of effort to break through your depression, and then you mentioned the talk therapy and working through the trauma and understanding your childhood and understanding your mom, is there more you can say about the work or was that essentially it when you say it took a lot of effort? I mean, to to me, I think what worked for me, and again, I don't, I don't believe that there is a, a right way to deal with trauma or depression or anything, but I think I'd, I'd hope that the way that I did it can at least give people ideas for how they can use it for themselves. But what worked for me was I'm best when I'm diving into therapy, you know, when I am being as completely open uh, about whatever it is I'm experiencing. So everything that did happen, any kind of strange thing I felt during the day, I would bring into session and we would talk about, and some of it wouldn't have any meaning or we couldn't find meaning at the time, but some of them were very insightful and it helped me to understand, oh, so I feel this way because my mother used to do this or because my dad didn't do this or whatever it is, right? And so just building a picture of what my childhood was like was so important because I just always thought there was something wrong with me. And to start to realize that maybe I felt like there was something wrong with me, but there was really something wrong with the way I was raised, with the experience I had growing up. And that had such a profound impact on me. Right. And still does. I mean, right, I've, I've done all this work. You know, I still struggle. That's the, the worst part, right? It's not like it's really over, you know, and I think you understand this. Like, depression will always be something we're conscious of. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, depression, the beginning of depression sort of feels like the edges of my brain are dark and cloudy. Right. And, you know, I'm hyper alert to that sensation because I don't want to ever have that happen again. Right. And if I catch it early enough, I have a better chance of working through it and figuring out what's going on. So I think, I guess I, I can't, I can't overstate the importance of truly trying to understand as much as you can about what you went through, what you experienced, what triggers you, what affects you, what interactions are most difficult. I mean, that was one of the things that really helped me thinking about authority figures and how difficult that is. A power differential really is very difficult for me. I still struggle with that now, but at least it's something that I'm aware of and can maybe come up with ways to deal with it versus, oh my God, this is scary and I don't know why. 
I know why it's scary. It makes sense that it's scary. Of course I'm scared. Let's see what I can do. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge piece of learning, right? To be able right. to, to at least know now, like, whoa, okay, let me think about it. Now I get why I'm feeling that way. There's a woman who's my boss, and I know right. how that might impact me now. Just that understanding, like you said, that awareness seems like such a major piece. And then, like you said, you can pull into your tools and your tool belt and figure out what you need to, to help manage your way through it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it just takes time. Right. So tell us now, now you're a therapist, but you also wrote a book, right? Yes. Can you tell us a bit about the book that you wrote? Sure. So the, this is my first book that's published. It's called Fatherhood in 40 Minute Snapshots. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, And it, uh, so the reason it's called Fatherhood in 40 Minute Snapshots I live in Long Island. I work in the city. So my Long Island Railroad commute is, not surprisingly, 40 minutes. Every article in the book was written on my 40-minute train ride going to the office. That's awesome. And they're each one, it's essentially a snapshot of a moment in time, of an issue I was dealing with, uh, a struggle I was having, a moment that was really amazing, or some of them, frankly, are just like frustrations that I was experiencing that I just needed to get out. And I found that that writing in the morning about these experiences of parenting was incredibly therapeutic. You know, it, it helped me to kind of process the feelings that I was having. Why am I struggling with this? What? Why do I feel this way? What do they need from me? How can I figure out how to be that for them? Just all this stuff that I you know, was working on because I had spent so much time trying to get myself into a position to be a good man. And then when kids came along, it really challenged me to to face more of my issues because not only did I need to be there for them in the way that, right, no one was ever there for me. And that's a whole part of parenting from my perspective. But also, you know, I had all these issues that I was struggling with and parenting triggered a lot of them, right? Oh, for sure. They would do something and then it would remind me of what I never got or it would remind me of what I felt at that age or, you know, what my parents may have said in those situations or whatever it was. Right. So it was almost this constant trigger that I was trying to work through but also figure out how to not have that affect them too much and still be what they needed me to be. And do you share that perspective throughout the book, the fact that you had had trauma from your mom and how that impacted you as a parent? So it's not quite as, it's certainly nothing like what we've talked about. Right, not as explicit. (laughs) Um, No, there are definitely some moments where I allude to what I've experienced and about how hard I'm trying to give them something that I didn't have. Right, just to jump to the future, I'm hoping later this year I'll be able to publish my memoir, which is actually a lot more of what we've been talking about. Okay, fantastic. Which is called In My Rear View Mirror. Okay. Um, and it's really that sort of once she was in my rear view mirror, how much my life changed. Right, right. Um, so the book Fatherhood in 40 Minutes 40 Snapshots. Minutes. 
um, this might be a challenging question for you, but do you have a particular snapshot that you're most proud of or that, that strikes you as like your favorite of the snapshots? That's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> so there are, there are two that I think are really, um, that come to mind when you ask that question. Mm -hmm. The first one is the first one I wrote, which was called uh, big brown eyes. And so, you know, I had this train to catch every morning and the thing about a train is right. You can't be late because it just leaves without you. So it's not like you're driving to work and you have a couple minutes to spare if something comes up. Right. And my son would follow me around. He was one and a half years old. He would follow me around and Literally every time I turned around, I would be tripping over him. <laughs> and I would get so frustrated because I, I'm trying to catch this train. I need to leave the house at a certain time to drive to the station, to walk to the station, to catch my train. And he just was in my way. And I was talking to my wife about that. And she says, you know, he's just trying to be like you. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Of course, he's just trying to be like me. So I needed to figure out how to connect with him, right, mm -hmm. with this. And it was such a simple solution. I just got up 10 minutes earlier, and then we did everything together. You know, when I brushed my teeth, I would brush his teeth. When I brushed my hair, I would brush his hair. You know, I'd get my shoes on together. Oh, that's awesome. And it became this special moment. But it was like, at first, I was just stuck not being in the moment, of where I was trying to be. And my wife is very good at pointing out we ought to be in the moment. Yeah. Oh, that's um, awesome. And that's something I'm a lot better at now, but that was, I mean, that was 15 years ago. Now, what a so. way to bond with your son. I'm sure he loved that exactly. tradition. Right. That's funny. And you have twins, right? I do. Yeah. They're 16 year old. Did want to mention that uh, we too are a uh, member of the twins club. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah. So I have, uh, do you have boy girl twins? I do. Yeah. So me too. My nice. kids now are, uh, my oldest is 13, uh, daughter. And then I have a daughter who's 10. And then we, we, we twisted oh, wow. each other's arms to go for number three. It was debatable. And we ended up with twins. Oh my so goodness. We love them dearly. And they were boy girls. So. So, yeah, members of the Twins Club. So you told me, uh, you said that you had two uh, little yeah, vignettes, so the, two snapshots. The second one thanks. was. So the second one is called uh, Comforting Elmo. And I think it's, like, from my perspective, it's probably the most powerful story in the whole book. Um, so my daughter had a lot of physical issues. She was, they the kids were born about, 10, 10 and a half weeks early. Wow. And so it was scary. They had to be in the hospital for four weeks. And then our daughter ended up getting something called retinopathy of prematurity, which really means that eyes grow well in the womb and eyes grow well outside the womb. But depending upon when they come out, it can disrupt that process. Okay. And so it did, and it started making the some of her veins in her eyes atrophy, harden, and it was dislocating her retina. 
I and can, she I was cannot, going blind. Oh my goodness! I cannot imagine the stress of yeah. of the twins being born that at that age and and having some physical ailments as new parents. Yeah. yeah. So we they were released from the hospital at four weeks, and by eight weeks we had brought her back to have laser surgery on both of her eyes, and so they you know, with a laser burn tiny holes in her eye to release the pressure from those veins. And she could see. Wow. And I think 10 years before they didn't have surgery for that yet. I was going to say like that must it's have been just, scary as can be. Yeah. And, and so yeah. thankful that there was such yeah. a laser surgery that that could be done. Yeah, exactly. And then, so then even though that happened, she ended up needing to wear a patch for, um, almost 10 years, nine years, uh, over one of her eyes. Cause it was really weak. Um, and then she had this like weird growth on her stomach and we had to cut that off. And then they both had some lung issues when they were younger. So we were constantly nebulizing them. And so I, one night, um, my wife told me about the fact that our little girl, and I think she was four or five at the time was nebulizing her Elmo, which was like her stuffed animal. Right. And she was telling him it was going to be okay and that he'd feel better. And I sort of go through talking about some of the stuff she's been through and how hard it was to hear her say that to him. And then sort of thinking through it and wondering, you know, so maybe that's actually a sign that we're doing okay because she's well enough and understands that she can comfort him to make him feel better. Right. Maybe in the way that we had comforted her to make her feel better. Oh, absolutely. But it's a, it, it's to me, it's, it's one of the most powerfully emotional stories that I write yeah. in the whole book. That is very cool. So if people want to get their hands on this book, where would they best find it? Um, so they can go to my website. It's jgs.net. So it, my name is Jeremy G. Schneider. So just my initials, jgs.net. Um, and right on the homepage, there's a link to buy the book. Fantastic. I will uh, make sure to have that in the show notes as well. And Thank in you. addition to the book, I mean, you've been writing for quite some time, right? And don't you have, yeah. you have a blog or at least some articles out there as well? I do. I actually have a, uh, a free ebook that I put together that I would be very happy if your listeners wanted to, uh, download. Also from um, the same that's website? Also, yep. Also from the same website. So in the menu on the top right, it just says free ebook. I know I try to make it really confusing. <laughs> so just click on that and give me your email address and we'll send you the book. Awesome. Um, and that's free. And then hopefully if you enjoyed that, well, it's a logical next step to get the book. Right. <laughs> if you're not sure you want to make that commitment yet. Great. Great. So that's the best place uh, for people to learn more about you, see more of your writing and so forth would be that website. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. So I would love to ask you, you know, before we wrap up here, what types of advice or hopeful messages would you give to any of our listeners right now who are going through depression or trying to deal with their own traumatic past? I think the first thing is don't give up. 
I think the second thing is there is no right way. I've said it before. There is no right way. But if you make the commitment to work on yourself, you'll keep figuring out where you need to go next. And sometimes that is with a therapist. Maybe it's sometimes with some of the quote-unquote non-traditional therapies. But I, I just know that every time that I wasn't sure I knew where to go or what to do, that when I looked inside and I really listened to myself, I had a sense of what I needed to do and what was next. I may not have always known where that was going to take me and what it would look like. You know, I never imagined my life being like this. But you know, I, I think the more that we are connected with ourselves and understand ourselves, at least it gives us a chance to enjoy our present, even if we're still struggling with our past. Great advice. You're a true inspiration. You know, you had an incredibly challenging childhood. It was sad to hear about it. But then to be able to see what you've done, and like you said, it took you an incredible amount of effort and you're still working on it, yeah. right? And you're still working on it, but you're married, happily married. You got two two grown twins and and you're doing the work you love, helping other people. So a huge inspiration to others. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for being on The Depression Files. Really, I really appreciate it. And uh, make sure that you stay healthy, Jeremy. I'm trying. Thank you very much for having me. This was really great. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.